Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. I hope you are having a wonderful day. This is the Addicted Mind Podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and we are on to another episode. Today, my guest is Nikki Eisenhower. Nikki is a psychotherapist, licensed professional counselor, licensed chemical dependency counselor, and life coach specializing in trauma, addiction, grief, and loss in highly sensitive people. She is a yoga and meditation teacher and host of the hit mental health podcast, Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. She uses her professional experience and her personal story to be an open book to spread emotional resiliency and raise our emotional intelligence to bring more peace, joy, ease, and fulfillment into our one precious life. So today, Nikki's going to share her story of resilience. But before we go further, I want to let you know that in this episode, we talk frankly and directly about sexual abuse and incest. And I wanted to give you the heads up that if that's something that's difficult for you or you're not ready to listen to an episode about that, you may want to skip this episode. But if you want to hear more about emotional resiliency and taking charge of your life, even after difficulty, pain and suffering, this is a great episode. Nikki shares her story. She shares why it is so important for us to just talk frankly about our experience directly to the topic. She's going to talk about surviving incest and outing the secret, confirming that we are not fragile, that we are highly sensitive and strong, about taking radical personal responsibility, boundaries as soul care, the power of vulnerability and showing up as our true selves and how we can take our story to live our best life and be our best selves. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. I really enjoyed interviewing Nikki. It was a powerful conversation. And if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. I really do appreciate it. And I really do read them. They mean a lot to me. They show up in my feed. And uh, it really does give me the strength to keep going and, and keep putting these episodes out there. So thank you so much for all of you that have taken the time to do that. I really do appreciate it. And don't forget, check us out on Instagram at Addicted Mind Podcast, where you can get all the latest episodes. All right, stay tuned for this interview. 
Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Addicted Mind. And today, my guest is Nikki Eisenhower of the Emotional Badass Podcast, which I love that name, where Moxie meets Mindful. Nikki, I am so happy to have you on the podcast to just talk about this. But first, let's just talk about Emotional Badass and what that means, because I love that name. That we worked on that name for about two years. And when I said it out loud, my husband producer was like, why have you been sitting on that all this time? You've had that. That came up for me when I was in a session with an incest survivor who had been abused since she was very, very little by her father, very brutally. And she was just so crumpled. She was sitting on my floor in my brick and mortar office back then. And it just came over me. And I said, have you ever considered that you're an emotional badass for what you've overcome, the fact that you're still here. And everything about her body language changed in that moment. It was like she grew a foot in front of me and just, no, I've never thought of it that way. It's like, well, it's true. And it's just, it's stuck for me. And I, I think when we, when we really connect with that we are powerful, resilient, beings, particularly in the moments where we might feel the most wounded. And in my own life, the moments I felt the most crazy and out of my mind and lost and confused from this vantage point, I can look back and go, that was me messily figuring it out. And I, I think that's sometimes what we're missing in a therapeutic experience as we, we do talk therapy and talk and talk and talk. It's being able to really realize that these are the, the things in life that we never would have chosen. Right. But when we overcome them, the amount of wisdom, the amount of growth work force, post-traumatic wisdom that we get is amazing. And if, if we could know that maybe a little earlier in the process, I think it would help a lot of us let go of some suicidal ideation and trust that we're on a road to finding our own inner badass. And we, and we really, really are. Yeah. I, I love that because you, you come through all those hard things and all those traumas and you really can't come out the other side and your emotions become a well of energy and inspiration. And, and yeah, you become an emotional badass to do amazing things with it. So going into that, we're going to talk about your story and we're going to talk about a topic that I think for a lot of people would be considered taboo to even talk about. We're going to talk about incest and the, the impact that had on your life and your journey going through that and becoming, what I'm going to say is, an emotional badass through that. So let's just start with your story. I am a survivor and I've had a lot of trauma in my life. And that is part of what made me want to get out of that therapist seat and do a podcast and share my story. Because in my journey, I didn't have people, enough people to look to, to go, oh, they did make it through to the other side. They, they did find peace. So I felt very desperate and I felt like my efforts to heal myself were very futile. I couldn't tell if I was doing it right, which is a very desperate feeling as you're moving through. So I wanted to use my story. I felt a strong spiritual calling actually to use my story to, to show people because truly 
I am an introvert. I have little fantasies of going to a little island. And as much as I love people, I really like my solitude and alone time. So it's a bit of a growth edge for me too, to put my story out there. But I do feel that calling because I want people to know that they can survive anything, even the things that we think we can't. So in my story, my mother, I believe is a sociopath. I'm the eldest in a family of three girls. She and my father had a very tumultuous, violent, immature relationship. They split when I was about five, six, and he kind of disappeared, but he came back for years. I, I have the story of sort of waiting on my grandparents' porch all day, and he just wouldn't show up. He was that kind of deadbeat dad. So I had a lot of abandonment trauma, and that's the wound that a predator can sniff out. They, they right. look for children and they look for situations where there's a vulnerability. And because my mother was an ice queen type, very cold, she was pregnant with me at 17, very immature, very self-absorbed, very rageful, I gravitated towards having more of an attachment with him. He's a narcissist, but he was warmer than she was. So right. often in dysfunctional families, that's kind of the rub. And that's a tough rub is that you don't have one unsafe parent, you really have two. And you're left to make this kind of incredible choice uh, of trying to get your needs met with the one that is kind of less awful is is the truth. It's a choice for survival, right? It's a choice for survival because you got to survive. Even as a child, you got to figure it out. You got to find that, try and find what is, I guess, the least harmful in horrible choices. Yep. Yep. And I think it's real easy in the general human experience to think, well, yeah, we need clothing. And, you know, I had, I was clothed and I had shelter and we were really poor, but I had my needs met. I didn't ever go hungry. And we sort of check those tangible boxes off. And it's really easy to dismiss the importance that we're, we're biologically wired to need affection. We need attachment. We need security. We need someone to help us figure out what we're feeling as small children so we can make sense of our worlds. I believe I was born a a highly sensitive child. There are those who will make the argument that trauma is 100% responsible for creating high sensitivity. I do believe I was born with it. And then trauma increased it is my theory. Yeah, I think that too. I think some of us are, are born with the ability to Maybe we have more mirror neurons in the brain. I don't know, but we can sense emotions from others and sometimes pull them in even stronger than maybe other people. So yeah, I can understand that. So I came into the world that way. And when I was born, they they thought I was going to die. So I was born a month early. We were Catholic. So I've already had last rites, the final sacrament. I'm no longer Catholic because they were ready for me to die. So I think from the moment I was born, that was a traumatic birth. I was struggling to breathe. My little nervous system had fight or flight immediately and then was born into that energy of two emotional children trying to take care of me while they fought and their families in that old school Southern way. I'm from New Orleans, forced them to get married. Worst marriage ever (laughs) in history. Right. And so I, I was the eldest child. So I'm, I was super parentified, super like a little adult, super like a little mama to my siblings. And as my mother dated, as they separated, 
she had kooky relationship after kooky relationship, man in and out, men in and out. We lived with my grandparents. They didn't know how to deal with my mother. They tried to be a buffer. I felt the tension between my mother and her parents. And then this wonderful man with my father leaving me, with me hungry for a dad. And at that time, schools were still doing father-daughter things. And so I would get lots of those things and cry. and, And I would bring my grandpa and the kids would make fun of me because through the late 80s and 90s, we were rougher with each other than kids are now. And so it it was rough. And then here comes like a white knight type. And that's how predators come in. So my biological father left. By the time I was 10, he was completely gone. And I was in deep grief about him when what would become the molester in my life showed up. And he took such a big interest in me. Very sweet, energied man, very kind. And that's almost always the case. Most familial abuse is a gentle form of abuse. It's not violent. It's not bloody. That can happen in family systems too, but it's not. And so he groomed me in a very kind way, in a very I'm interested in you way. Yeah. And if you're in this hurting space and there's this person who has this alternative motive, you're not going to be able to see that as a, as a child. Yeah. It's going to feel, I would imagine, really good. It felt it's like getting feel, high. Like, yeah, this is like the Addicted warm, Mind podcast. Like, it was a high for me as a child. I yeah. To look back and really understand that, it, it's like being starved. And then here comes a predator to serve you this magnificent meal that you have only fantasized about. I was so hungry for someone to emotionally hold me and everything that that means emotionally, not not necessarily physically, but that too. And the truth is that he had two smaller children that were younger than I was at the time. He had already gone through his own divorce. My mother was his third wife. He had already been accused of abusing those two small children who were toddlers, who were four and under. Oh my goodness. My mother was warned by his ex-wife. And my mother did nothing to protect us. So essentially, as the story goes, my mom basically handed me and my sisters to this predator, a predator. And the moment that they were together, nobody tucked us in. He took that role of tucking us in. And it started with arm rubbies, like just something so innocent and so pure, like we would healthily do with any child in our charge or, or that we love and take care of to just to, to be in that safe physical touch and that connection and that, that soothingness of your falling asleep with someone just rubbing your arm so appropriately, even if somebody was watching, they couldn't find anything wrong with it. And that's how, that's how those things start. It, it starts with a, with a hug and the hands go a little bit lower and then a little bit lower and then a little bit right. lower until they're in zones that they shouldn't be in. And so that insidious factor is a, a, a main part of how they groom. Right. And they make you comfortable with it as a child, as they slowly do this to you. And then you're, in, you're, you're so hungry for someone to care about you that you, I would imagine you kind of, I don't want to say ignore, but you, it's it's all confused of like your emotional response to that, I would imagine. Like it, it would become confusing. Absolutely confusing. He and my mother developed a good cop, bad cop 
dynamic where he was the good cop. So she would come in and scream. Sometimes she'd punch walls. Sometimes she'd fly in my room and just grab me, lifting me off the ground because she was hollering for me. Um, there's a part I'm writing right now for my memoir where I'm blow drying my hair so I couldn't hear her. And it just so there was a constant level of terror and tension. And that's very hard in and of itself, separate from the sexual abuse to wrap our minds around. My mother had told me all of my life, don't you ever let a man put his hands on you. And she taught me to fight. If like if anyone would have snatched me outside of my family dynamic, I would have known to fight and kick and scream. The glitch in that teaching was, what if it's somebody you know? Yeah. Very hard to understand all of that going on and how her behavior really drove me into the safety of him and how that in and of itself was a very intentional master manipulation on his part. That's not a mistake. That's not an accident. That's incredibly intentional. Yeah. And in, and that's why that, that kind of grooms you into that space where you feel comfortable enough and they keep pushing the boundaries slowly over time. And then I would imagine, you know, when I've worked with people who've had sexual abuse like this, there's such confusion too, because sex is also pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And this becomes really confusing for a child because now those things are starting to get crossed. That's where the shame hides. That's where the shame hides. And predators know that. Because it's hard for a child's mind to put their finger on or their voice to what's wrong here. We feel the wrongness. Now I can use the phrase, intuitively, I knew that things were wrong. But I didn't know how to interpret that intuitive message into language where I could ask someone for help or put into verbalization what was happening so that maybe someone could have helped me. The shame hides in it feeling good, but it also feeling bad. And that's really complex yeah. when we grow up and try to have a healthy sex life, because that's a dynamic of healthy sex too. We all have that, you know, sex feels good, but it feels a little bad. You know, it's good, but it feels a little naughty. And so how much naughty is okay and right? And when is naughty bad and wrong? I mean, these are really, really confusing things when someone with more power who is physically bigger than you, who is supposed to be your safety and security, is toying with your emotions, toying with your body, toying with what you understand safety and feeling good is. So it taught me that goodness, that good feeling of comfort was also combined with me getting hurt. Right. And I think like when you're talking about this, you can, I mean, for me, I can feel the, the ickiness of it as we even just discuss it. And so it's almost like, let's just not talk about it because it's just so icky and it's so awful. Yet it, at the same time for anyone out there who's struggling, these kind of candid conversations have to happen. The ick doesn't belong to you. If you're out there listening and you feel icky because this sort of these confusing energies were all mixed up in your experience, I want you to know that the ick doesn't belong to you. It's not your ick. Just right. like I'm talking about it right now and 
yes, I felt icky for a long time. Of course I did. He gave me the ick. That, that's kind of the transfer of energy that a predator does to a child. Healing is about sort of giving that ick back. Like, it's not mine. It never should have been mine in the first place. Therefore, I refuse it and I give it back to my abuser. It belongs to him. It always did. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I think also, as you're talking about that, you know, as our society talking about these hard topics, I mean, this ick is, can be everywhere, if that makes sense, around sexuality and having these kind of conversations about it. Yes. And I'm from New Orleans, which is a place of deep mixed messaging. We are a very Catholic society. So I was raised with all the Catholic shame. When I learned the word bastard, I remember going, oh, that's what I am because I knew my mother wasn't married when she was got pregnant with me. So in terms of shame, coming from that Catholic shame, I felt shame because I existed because I was taught that I was a bastard by that religion. So we can see how I had so much shame damage before an abuser was ever even in my life and he could tell. Now he groomed me much more slowly than my younger siblings. So part of the the shock to me in growing up and coming to terms with these things was realizing that he had started abusing my siblings as young as four and six, but I was the eldest. So he couldn't, he, he had to work me longer basically right. because I was older. As an oldest sibling, when these secrets finally came out many years later, it absolutely crushed me to find out that their abuse had been before he had even abused me. I thought he would have started with me and gone down the line, which I think is an easy assumption for us to make. But often if they're coming into a family system as a step-parent situation, they will start with the younger ones. You you said that that crushed you because you discovered that your siblings also suffered this pain and it didn't stop with you, but it went all the way through. Often the plight of the eldest in a very dysfunctional family is to be the caretaker of everyone else. And then we spend a lifetime trying to recalibrate that to something reasonable. So I felt a lot of responsibility as the sort of emotional mother of my siblings because they'd, we couldn't get that from my mother. So the eldest sibling often steps into that role to take care of the younger ones. So in a way that really wasn't fair to me, but was the the only way I knew how to process, when that came out, I felt responsible for not protecting them. It took me years to put together that I couldn't even protect me. There's no way I could have protected them. And that is a hard to verbalize thing that happens to a lot of eldest children in dysfunctional families. That's that's another part of why I'm sharing my story. There's lots of ways to connect with my story in different levels to help you kind of understand all of yours. Because the truth is, as different as my story may be from someone else's, often the dynamics at play are very, very similar. And how we heal and what we need to do to heal is often very, very similar, even when our stories are wildly different. One of my hard truths was that my memories were truly repressed while they were happening to me. I was in graduate school to become a counselor, learning about repressed memories. And my first thoughts were, this can't be real. What a load of crap. You can't really have a repressed memory. And those are still controversial today. I can tell you they're real because they happened to me. It wasn't until I was in my early 20s and the man that I was with at the time 
tried to initiate sex with me in the middle of the night while I was sleeping. Well, that's how my abuse had happened. So all of a sudden, in one moment, all of the abuse flooded back to me at about 22 years old. I had been massively depressed. I mean, hard to move my body, psychomotor impact where I I was having trouble moving my body. I was so depressed. When those memories came back, I knew it was true. And the moment that that came back to me, I knew that I had to confront that. And that's, that's my nature is I, I believe I was born, it might sound cheesy, but I believe I was born a truth speaker. I believe it's my purpose. I believe me talking to you today is part of my purpose to, to offer and model healing for others about what is possible. And so I had to deal with the fact that I had had repressed memories and they came back. When I confronted my parents, I called them to my home. I was living with this man. It happened to be weeks before I was getting married the first time, had a big wedding planned, and I confronted it. And I said, I have these memories. And my psyche, my psyche repressed the memories to try to protect me. You know, this might sound dramatic, but I've got a fighter in me and I'm a protector of others. Right. And I think if I would have known in real time, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. I'd probably be in prison. I grew up in a police family. We always grew up with a gun on the refrigerator. If I would have known he was hurting my siblings, I likely might have killed my parents. And I'm a good person with a big heart. (laughs) Back then in that reactive mode and dysregulation that I had to, that very likely could have been my story. So I believe that in a spiritual sense, maybe even less than a psychological sense, that my memories were repressed so that I could get all the way out of that household before so I was able survive, to deal. Yes. You know, like to, to survive and, you know, the body can do some amazing things around trauma to keep us alive. And yeah, taking these, this is just too hard at the time for your spirit, your mind, your body, whatever you want to call it, to, to handle. You wouldn't have been able to survive it. Like you're saying, something horrible would have happened. And, yes. and your body, I guess in a way, I would say your body knew that. And took care of me. And, and so many people who have had tough childhoods have a lot blocked out. That's very natural. And a lot of people I see fight themselves. Like, I was there. It happened to me. I should know. And they spend so much energy fighting themselves to know. What I can offer you here is, of course, we want to know what happened to us. Of course, that's our desire. But if we let go of that, so that we're not fighting ourselves to try to get there, we can reframe it in this kind of way. Thank you, mind and body. You took care of me in ways I didn't even know I needed. I know enough about what happened to me to heal. I don't need to know all the details. If there's something, my deep, psych- my deep psyche, if there's something deep in my subconscious that will help me and will serve me, I am open to you sending me that memory. But if it won't help me, I don't need it. And let it go. And let it go. So in this moment, you had this kind of flashback to this. And did you have any awareness that something was not right? Or did it all come in this moment? I had awareness that there was a lot of dysfunction. I had awareness that something was wrong with how he let my mother abuse us. I also had the sense that I was being manipulated, but I 
didn't quite know to use that word. Part of what was abusive that had nothing to do with sexual abuse in a way, he groomed me, he manipulated me to ask him to adopt me. So we also went through an adoption. And when all this came out, I felt such a sense of self-betrayal that I had asked this man out of a sense of love and thinking he took care of me to legally be my father, to take his name. And so we did that. When I was 14, I, I was adopted by him. What about that, that confusion too? I felt it. I, I felt, I felt the way he would say things like, I miss my own children because he only had supervised visitation. So that's a pretty big, do I need to bleep but not say a curse word? No, you but, could, you okay, could that, say anything so, you want. Yeah, that's a pretty big mind fuck that I have memories of going to visit his children with a court supervised yeah. attendee who didn't ever report for the three girls he showed up with. So he, he, that, and that's the thing about a predator. That's the thing about sociopaths. They, they like to kind of, I don't know what right phrase to use. I want to say sort of like swing their balls around, not a technical term, right? Show but, their power. Like yeah. I have all this power. I can show yeah. my power. So imagine the balls of showing up when you're accused of abusing these other kids, you need supervision. You're going to show up with three other kids to a court appointed person. The gall of that will never escape me. So those types of moments where I was like, why is someone watching him with the kids? What's going on here? And I could feel the tension. I could feel just this heavy, thick, weird tension. And I could feel him when he would say things like, I miss my kids so much. All I've ever wanted to be was a father. And I'd go, oh, you're my father. You're my dad. I'm no one's right. legal guardian. Oh, will you adopt? I wound up writing him a Christmas card asking him to adopt me. Yeah, and he was so thrilled. And so that that became his own way to manipulate the world. Nikki asked me to be her father. I'm going to adopt her. I'm so safe. It became a thing where, that he could use to tell the world he was just so safe and so wonderful. Right. And he just used that as a, another manipulative tool. Can you go into a little bit of this piece that you talked about? You know, you said earlier that feeling of looking back and seeing seeing the craziness of this and the feeling of self-betrayal with the realization that I was being manipulated. How did I not see it? Or how did I not know it? Or why didn't I do something different? Why didn't I stand up? Why didn't I say something? My theory is that because abusers don't take any responsibility for themselves, they don't feel appropriate shame. They don't feel appropriate guilt. If they did, they wouldn't behave the way that they behave, no matter what thoughts or feelings they had. So what I believe is that guilt and shame is like a big beach ball when somebody's an abuser and they show up with their guilt and shame that they really should hold. They should hold that ball. And part of the abuse, part of what they do to their victim is they give their victim that beach ball that they're unwilling to hold. And we as the victim go, oh, I guess I'm supposed to hold this ball of shame. Right, yeah. So that was me and my over-responsibility. When you have the dynamic of being a parentified kid because your parents aren't responsible, you learn that you're responsible. When you grow up with narcissists, 
narcissists, I say they're responsible for nothing and victim of everything. So when you knock over a glass of milk as a kid, the narcissistic parent doesn't go, oh, great, an opportunity to get some paper towels and teach you how to clean this up. Let's do this. The narcissist goes, oh my God, why'd you do that to me? So we learn to feel guilty and shameful for little bitty inconsequential things. So of course, for a big giant thing, like I asked my abuser to be my father, we're going to feel an amount of shame that is indescribable. That keeps it all locked away. Yes. Yes. And that's so often what drives us to drugs or alcohol or acting out. Then we have that shame. And so it's like shame just layers on top and layers on top until we feel so weighted down and so desperate. We tend to think or feel that there's no way out. There are definitely ways out. And sharing your story. That's why I do it. That's why I do it. It has been such a long journey for me to shed those layers of shame and give it back, sort of put it where it belongs instead of carrying that ick with me. Right. Instead of holding on to that, that you're, you're passing it back to them and, and putting it in its right place where it belongs. Yes. Yes. So as I grew up, I recreated a lot of my family dynamic too. And then that creates shame. I had partnerships and I've been married and divorced twice. I'm now in my third very healthy, very compatible marriage, and I'm very happy now. But I certainly, my, my first marriage, I basically married the male version of my mother. When my memories came back, I self-checked in to a psych unit. And there's so much stigma about that in our society. I was in my counseling program when I did that, I remember emailing. It actually hit the television. So that was part of this for me. And that was another very hard thing. And part of why I do want to share my story with people is because I did press charges. Ultimately, he served 14 years in prison. He was sentenced to 20. I watched the judge myself say he was not eligible to be released for good behavior or anything early. And then they released him six years early. And that was right before I launched Emotional Badass. And I was heartbroken that he got out of prison. I tried so hard to get officials, everyone in Louisiana, to, to fight to keep him in. I was angry that judge had lied to victims' faces because the uh. judge doesn't have the power to make that decision. And yet it's something that they say in court. It's something that does really well for reelection as a judge but is very damaging to someone in my position as a survivor, as the victim, because it's another manipulation. It's another, that the child that I was could not trust the adult units to adult properly. And going through the court system is basically the recreation of that. Some places are better than others. I would say Louisiana is one of the worst, but that and was all. You see all this trauma just played out again. Like it's just all through, through the system itself. I think that's responsible for so much suicide because that feels like the world is out to get you. It feels like there is no safe place. It feels like no matter how hard I try, it's just going to keep piling on and piling on. I come from a police family of a very corrupt police officer in Louisiana. So when I outed the secret of this abuse, I went to the police and my entire family 
remains to this day very upset with me about that option. So I'm also no contact with my entire giant family that I grew up very, very close with. They wanted you to keep this silent. This is... When you come from dysfunctional family systems, there's almost an endless amount of dysfunction available. And so they would have liked to handle it properly, probably kick his ass or find somebody to kill him so that it didn't, the family didn't have to deal with the the publication of that, basically. And I did not want that. I knew in the back of my mind, I didn't want him handled. I wanted him going through the proper channels. I wanted him to be charged And I wanted people to know the truth about him. So then I was the scapegoat for letting that secret out. Right. And then you get the backlash from the system that then tries to punish you to keep you silent again. Yes. Yes. So there's so so many painful. Don't point out what's in front of us. Don't talk about it. And that's that beach ball of responsibility. When you have players who don't take proper responsibility and my siblings that I love dearly are part of this system. And so even them, they don't know how to hold a proper responsibility ball. They don't know how to give the proper responsibility beach ball to the abuser. Then I became the bad guy because I'm the one that broke the secret. And that is so often the case. And that is a terrible reality of this dynamic. Yeah. Absolutely. And you see that hurt and pain. And I've worked with clients that have gone through that as well. And it's just another layer of trauma that's just so painful. I'm also an addiction specialist. It's part of what I do. It's part of why I'm happy to be here. Coming from New Orleans too, people don't deal with emotion very well. We are the land of vices. I cannot think of a place. We have more vices than Vegas. The first time I visited Vegas, I was like, Ooh, I'm going to, I'm going to see all kinds of sin. And, and I, and it felt so flat for me. I was like, Oh, (laughs) I come from the land of sin. (laughs) And growing up with Mardi Gras, you know, talk about sexualization. I grew up watching women flash their boobs for beads. Like that's part of our, what's natural and normal down there. I grew up with, you know, what we would kind of jokingly say, dirty old men, like drunkenly giving you a kiss at the Irish Italian parade when you're 11 to get your flower and thinking it hysterical to slip you the tongue real fast instead of that kiss on the cheek. So in a lot of ways, things like that also didn't teach me the proper boundaries about my body, about being able to gauge somebody's energy, about being safe. It's like, no, go get that flower from that drunk guy who's going to try to stick his tongue down your throat while your parents watch, while all the adults watch. So there's a lot that is mind-blowing, I think, when you're not from there to really wrap your head around growing up with. So all of that, the culture where you come from, not just the culture of your family, but the culture of where you are. And in, in just like we know with some of the sexual abuse out of the Catholic church for cities like Boston, New Orleans is a Catholic church, is a, is a Catholic place too. And so it's like it gets into the soil or something, this idea that, no, we're not going to talk about hard things. We are all in agreement that we're going to brush it under the rug. And when you go, oh, no, I'm going to take that rug and nobody can brush anything else under it, you don't get a, wow, how brave. Thank you so much. You get a, F what are you. you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, put that rug back, please. Yeah. So it yeah. took a lot of courage. And, and I want you to know, listeners, that I didn't feel courageous. 
I felt shaky. I felt maximum anxious. I felt out of my mind a lot. A big part of my work with such survivors is saying, hey, the crazy's not inside of you. It was outside of you. It was outside of you all along. All that confusion I had, is it me? Am I crazy? Am I losing my mind? Why is my family responding this way? The dynamic is crazy. And often the person in the system that's trying to make sense of it, who's trying to, I say, shine light in the dark corners, you know, gets pasted with the, the crazy C, like the, like the scarlet <laughs> letter. And part of healing is shedding that and letting that go and starting to understand. If I look back at my story, my intuition do always. And so my healing in my adulthood has been a great apology to my inner child. That sounds like, oh, sweet girl. Intuition was trying to tell me. We, we knew, but we didn't know how to interpret it. And we couldn't have known because we were too little. But grown up me will always listen to your intuition. And I will adjust and I will take care of us. And I will not let anybody make me throw my intuition out the window. Right. And you, you talk about such an important point because when people suffer this kind of trauma, that whole sense of self trusting themselves, because like you said earlier, the betrayal, how could I not see it? All that stuff really does, like you said earlier, kind of leave you with a mind fuck where you're like, I don't even know how to be, so to speak. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about moving through this and in your words, becoming an emotional badass, because I imagine people are going to be listening to this episode and you're going to be saying a story that many of them may have experienced. And I also want them to have some idea of a path out, of a path forward. Path out and path forward. These are the things that I had to wrap my head around. Your mind is going to understand things faster than your body will. I find that that's something that most counseling misses and people really need to hear. From hearing my story, you can hear that my little body was probably activated almost constantly. So I had severe PTSD that I thought I would have always. I have almost zero symptoms now. So that's available to you. But the key is that you can't fight yourself along the way. If you're having fight or flight triggered and you're fighting yourself, like, what's wrong with me? Like a lot of my clients will say, Nikki, what's wrong with me? I've had this same conversation with you five, six, seven, eight, nine times. And I'm like, yeah, we might have to have that conversation more because the head knowledge comes easily. The heart and body knowledge, your body being able to feel what your mind knows so my mind learned after a while of trying to heal, okay, it's not my fault. Okay, I need to forgive myself. Okay, I need to practice calming things, but I'd get frustrated with my body. Like, I, I know better. Why am I getting anxious about this? I shouldn't be anxious about whatever. Instead of becoming the mother for myself, the father for myself, that my parents couldn't be for me. So I had to cultivate, and if you're out there resonating with me, there's no two ways about it in my book. You got to cultivate becoming your own soft place to fall. And part of what we have to cultivate is patience. There is not one dysfunctional family out there that is great with patience. 
if you're dis- if you come from a dysfunctional system, look around at the players. Was everybody impatient? So one of the main things that we have to learn is patience with our own process. And that's a very hard thing for a client to show up to a therapist and go, please help me learn how to be more patient with me because I trust that what I'm doing is going to work because we don't trust that what we're doing is going to work. We haven't grown up watching people work on themselves. So we have no clue that what we're doing is actually going to be effective. And that makes us feel desperate. How do you heal a nervous system if you're feeling desperate about the positive things that you're doing for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Everything's still in the dark, even the the healings in the dark until you hear like your story and it's shared so that people can understand that, you know, in a way, our body wants to protect us. And these responses are what I see normal for what we've experienced. Mm-hmm. So if, if you take anything from me, work and work diligently on yourself. And I'll say more about how, but also don't undervalue cultivating patience and kindness and soft place to fall. You gotta deal with the critical voice in your head. Because as you make positive change, even as you take the risk to try to make positive change, if your inner critic shows up and is strong the way mine was, every little step along the way, just like a bully, it will talk shit to you. It will tear you down because you learned that along the way. And that's the language that shame creates inside of us. So a predator comes along, gives us the shame, and then the shame almost grows like a gremlin and creates a voice and then talks to us. It starts as somebody else's stuff and then that's how it becomes our own. So we must do the work and have the understanding that we need to eradicate this inner critic from our heads and not let it talk shit to us all along the healing process because it scares us. It activates us. It shames us because that's what it learned. It tells us we're not good enough. It tells us we're not getting there faster. It makes us just dysfunctionally compare to other people and feel less than. And all of that is an absolute waste of our precious energy and is an absolute disregard to ourselves because guess what we learned? Disregard of ourselves from our caretakers if we grew up in a dysfunctional family. So we are absolutely learning how to show up in our own lives as reasonable, healthy reparenters. I call it the wise woman or the wise man within all of us. And we are cultivating her or him. We are, we want to dial up the volume on that wise woman, wise man voice that can show up and go, Oh honey, you actually took a a really great risk. I'm sorry it didn't work out, but that was the right move. Good job. You, I'm, I'm glad that you try things even when they don't work out. That's honoring of who you are in this one precious life. That critical voice that goes, yeah, you failed again. You really embarrassed yourself. What do you think people think? fuck that voice. You got to get that voice out of your head. I love it. Oh, Nikki, I I love that. So before we started, you had said something about, you know, ask me the hard questions about this topic of incest. And so I want to know, is there any question that I haven't asked that you think is really important to be asked about this topic? that we can put it here now. I don't know if I can form it as a question, but I'll give you I'll give you this answer without the question. You got it. I think therapist and trauma-informed people, you know, the best of intention under the sun are people who have had trauma-informed 
teaching to help others. I've never been so enraged in a healing process than trauma-informed people trying to talk to me because there's something that is missing there in that teaching. I don't know why or what, but I've had a, a dozen or more interactions with people with that training who have the best of intentions in their heart to help traumatized people. They treat traumatized people like they're delicate and they're not. And it's insulting and it's dismissive and it's minimizing and it's patronizing. And so if you're either getting that care and you have that vibe and I just put words to a feeling you haven't been able to put words to, get a different healer. And if you're a trauma-informed person, you're not helping anybody by looking at someone as, oh, poor them. They've been through so much. Nobody wants sympathy. Nobody wants pity. And a trauma survivor, a real trauma survivor, I don't mean somebody said a word that made me uncomfortable and I'm calling, I'm saying that that was traumatic for me. That's bullshit. I'm talking about if you really have been traumatized, you've been betrayed by somebody in the human race, then you are not delicate. You are the strongest fucker out there and you better own that because that is part of you starting to own who you really are. And don't you dare let anybody, even somebody with a pure heart with great intention, give you that kind of dismissal of your power and your strength. I love it. I love it, Nikki. That's just so empowering and it moves to our strength and resiliency that we can be strong. We are strong, even in these horrible situations of abuse, incest, loss, grief. We have this incredible capacity to be resilient. So resilient and so powerful. And the, the trick is that we, we have to not believe our feelings so much. And I'm a highly sensitive person. I'm an empath. And that's tricky. You know, we move through the world, world as feelers, feeling through. But we have to understand that some of our feelings, when we, if we feel weak, if we feel lost, it's just a feeling. That's not a confirmation of who we are or our capabilities. And that's where we make the mistake. Have your feelings and learn how to feel your feelings. Learn how to feel disappointed. Learn how to feel frustrated. But don't let that uncomfortable feeling leave the body where it's supposed to be felt. A feeling's supposed to be felt. A feeling is not supposed to be thought. A feeling's supposed to be felt. Don't let those uncomfortable feelings go to your head and create a story about who you are, like your worth is damaged, like you're never going to get it. You are so powerful. And if you allow yourself to believe that you will be guided, Things like yoga. I teach boundaries every October. I've got a new course on how to practice feeling peaceful in your body. I haven't even announced that yet on my show. We just finished it. There are these things that you can actually do and no one thing will heal you. It's going to be the everything that heals you. My healer is my spiritual mother. She's my therapist. Maya Angelou is a spiritual mom. Um, Titnat Han is a spiritual dad. I've never met them yep. and I get to call them in. And I get to do that for me and my inner child. We might be born to one or two, or if we have blended families, multiple parents, okay? But the universe will provide us as many parents as we allow in. I am so blessed when I get Mother's Day texts and cards from my spiritual children out there. So there's so much more available and you just keep going. You put one foot in front of the other. And if you're a seeker, trust that you will get there. How do you think you got all the way to this podcast? That's right. That's right. Oh, Nikki, this is awesome. I mean, we could go on forever, usually, but I think you kind of just answered this question, but I'm going to throw it out there again anyway. 
which is at the end of my podcast, I usually ask one question. Someone out there is struggling and you could tell them one thing. What would you want them to know? You're an intuitive being, even if you don't know that. That's how you got all the way to here. We're a heady society. Trust your gut and your intuition more than your head knowledge. And that's basically a flip-flop of what most people will tell you. But you have had a good gut. I hope you could hear it in my story that the little girl I was, my gut knew. And if we taught more people from a young age to trust their gut, we do that now instead of teaching stranger danger, right? The predator will pick the kid. Now we're teaching the kid, hey, you pick the person because their gut will pick the person if they're lost from their parent and they need help instead of sitting back passively and letting that person pick them. Your intuition knows so much more than your head ever could. And there's a process. There are people out there. I'm one of them that'll help you learn the difference between intuition and anxiety. And when you start to understand that, that brings a sense of security for walking this world, for dealing with and relating to each other because there are wonderful, big hearted people and there are predators out there. And we get to learn how to spot them and how to sense them from our gut. And when we do, that is a confidence that my grown-up wise woman has for my inner child that gives her the very thing that she missed out on from her own parenting. And also, if you were abused, if you're a female and you were abused by a man, don't live a life where you're scared of men all your life. Don't fall into all this toxic masculinity, toxic masculinity. Yes, of course that exists. So does toxic femininity. There's such a wonderful safety and security. There's a yin and yang about masculine and feminine. And I hate when I hear that a survivor sort of decides that the best strategy is walling off from everything masculine. There are so many healthy, beautiful, safe, masculine people. And a lot of survivors, when they have children, try to never let their kids ever be alone with a man. Part of why I'm okay today is some of my uncles, my grandfather, there, there is something so wonderful. And when we know and allow safe men in, it helps us then go forth into the world. I have my healthy husband now in part because of a good male friend of mine, because he modeled and held some energy for me and helped me know that that was possible and out there. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Nikki, for sharing that. Thank you so much. Where can people find you and how can they contact you? You easiest place to find me is emotionalbadass.com. You can also come hang out with me for my monthly live streams. I have a Patreon at patreon.com backslash emotionalbadass. You can find my coaching site if you want to sign up for my newsletter, but my last name's a little hard to spell, but you can find everything that you need from me at emotionalbadass.com or Sober Powered Media. There you go. Awesome, Nikki. Thank you so much for just, just sharing your story and just being willing to put it all out there so other people can grow and heal and thank you. all of that. Thank you for being brave and letting me talk about this topic. So many people don't want to, even in the time after Me Too. And I know it's a scary word. Someone said to me one time, ooh, Nikki, you're going to talk about that on the radio? The world's not ready for incest. I said, yeah, I know. I wasn't either. So we've got to deal <laughs> with what we've got to deal with. And when we do, that's how our life gets easier when we deal with the real stuff. So thank you for being willing and open to hold space for me and my story. You got it. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com, so check them out. 
If you got a lot out of this episode, share it with a friend. And don't forget, click the subscribe button. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how twos for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.